A funny thing happened to Galina Timchenko on her way to work one day this June. Well, it isn't actually that funny. It was pretty terrifying. And the timing wasn't so good either. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Galina Timchenka is the co-founder, publisher, and CEO of Medusa, which is the news outlet responsible for the podcast you're listening to right now. Galina's no good, very bad day was June 23rd, which is when she learned that her iPhone had been infected with Pegasus, an Israeli-designed spyware that you'll hear about a lot today. Access to Pegasus ain't cheap. In fact, researchers believe that the service, which is sold only to state actors, costs tens of millions of dollars, meaning that somebody, some government agency out there, paid maybe a million bucks to hijack her smartphone. Why would somebody do that? How would somebody do that? And who could have done it? That's the subject of this week's show. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy folks, I'm Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition and the host of this podcast. On this week's show, we're diving deep into the biggest story concerning Medusa's own newsroom since the Russian authorities outlawed a reporting back in January. On June 23rd, we learned that somebody secretly installed the spyware Pegasus on the iPhone of our co-founder and CEO, Galina Timchenko. The intrusion happened in February, mere hours before she joined a private conference in Berlin, attended by colleagues in the exiled Russian independent media. Given the timing, a leading theory is that the hackers used Galina's phone like a bug to listen in on what Russia's free press in Europe was planning. Remember that this was in February, just a month after Medusa was banned in Russia as an undesirable organization. And independent journalists in exile were scrambling to adapt to this new next phase of Kremlin censorship. But before I get on with the story, a brief message. Hello, this is Anna Razumne, one of Medusa's English side news editors, who bring you the daily breaking news and feature stories from Russia as well as Ukraine, Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. Although millions of our readers in both English and Russian live around the world, one of the key goals we're committed to is to continue providing accurate and uncensored information to our audience in Russia, where the state is daily ramping up its offensive on the independent press. This mission, of course, requires funding. And yet it has become dangerous for our readers in Russia to support Medusa. Vladimir Putin's regime has banned our publication, designating it an undesirable organization, which means that anyone who supports our work from within Russia risks facing criminal prosecution. But Vladimir Putin doesn't have to have the last word on whether Medusa gets to live or the Russian people's access to uncensored reporting. We would very much prefer this to be your decision. As a member of our international audience, you have a say in deciding the future. I'm talking about the future of the free Russian language press, about Medusa's future, but also about the future of Russian society, which depends on access to truthful information about the world. We ask you to contribute to sustaining our work at this important time, when this really does matter more than ever. If you like what we do, and if you believe in the importance of free media in a democratic society, please support us with your donation today. You can do this by following the Stand With Us link at the top of our website. And if you decide to donate to us today, thank you, and enjoy the rest of this show. Okay, as I said at the top of the show, Pegasus is reportedly sold only to state agencies, and it's a very expensive product from an Israeli cyber arms company called NSO Group, ostensibly designed to hunt down only the grisliest criminals, terrorists, criminals, and pedophiles, according to the designers. NSO clients have regularly used the spyware against journalists, opposition politicians, and activists. 
As widespread as these attacks have been, however, Galina Timchenko's infection is the first confirmed case of anybody using Pegasus against a Russian journalist. To understand how this is possible and why it matters, I spoke to Natalia Krepiva, tech legal counsel at Access Now, a nonprofit organization committed to defending and extending the digital civil rights of people worldwide. So the first question I had was a very basic one. Is this case with Galina Timchenko, is this the first case that we know of of a Russian journalist being targeted by Pegasus? It is the first case that has been documented of a Russian journalist confirmed to be infected with Pegasus. That's right. But in the, re- in the reporting on this incident, one of the things that stood out to me is this established or this believed fact that uh, Pegasus is not allowed to be used against American or Russian telephone numbers. And I know that Galina was using a Latvian telephone number. And so I know this is a very complicated issue, but can you walk me through how it is that this like, spyware can be controlled in terms of who it's used against? Yeah, so there is a lot, of course, that we don't know about Pegasus and NSO group company, right, and the way that it's doing its business and how it limits its um, the way that what the customers are doing with this uh, spyware. But based on the available evidence and information that we have, there was, in fact, reporting from what I understand from sources close to NSO that there was, in fact, limitation made uh, on their users, on their customers, not being able to target uh, United States or Russian numbers, phone numbers. And so the fact that Galina's number, uh, Galina Timchenko's number was Latvian, Latvian area code, says something. It doesn't tell us everything, who's behind it, but it does tell us, well, at least it is not excluded based on sort of the evidence that we have, right? So you could still see the situation where either Latvia or Estonia or someone else could have targeted Galina and that wouldn't cross, it wouldn't contradict this supposed policy of, you know, Russian numbers not being targeted. Can you tell me what I read as well is that NSO group, and I don't know if, if it makes sense for you for me to ask you for like a description of what NSO group is, because obviously, you know, it's been written about before. But what I understand is that they, it's believed that they offer sort of like um, different kinds of contracts that will actually restrict the nature of the spying and snooping that clients can do. Can you explain to me what we know about these contracts and kind of like what we don't know and how we know anything at all? Like, what are the limits of what, what we know about this and how, how much do we know in your, in your view? Yeah, so it's, it's quite difficult. And the reason for that is because the whole business uh, model of companies like NSO Group and other similar companies, the whole business model revolves around secrecy and lack of transparency and just full obscurity about their business operations and practices and how exactly the business transactions work, what are the limitations on what their users, customers, operators can do. And so we have a, a quite limited information still, but we do know certain things, again, some that we know, again, from the research that we're doing, that technical research, right, that Citizen Lab and others are doing. And then we have some investigative uh, reporters uh, who are also have sources maybe within the companies or otherwise are familiar with the practices and operations that can tell us something. So based, again, on a somewhat limited information, we do the way that we understand that it works is that there is some kind of at some point 
that there is a could be a, like a package deal, right? So the customer would purchase a certain at a time to say, okay, we can infect at the same time concurrently, right? A certain numbers, and then that would go usually by the country, right? So in in our country, whatever, if it's a government, like it's an intelligence agency in uh, country X, we can infect so many numbers concurrently, and this is like a price for that. And then again, we we don't know for sure, but it but it seems like on the all available information that we have had is that there's some kind of a limitation. At some point, um, the customer would have to either ask permission, or it has to be somewhere in the contract as to who they can, uh, which other sort of numbers or countries they can target. And I don't know whether that's a special price or some other um, it's extra or not, but but it certainly seems to be that that's the way that it works. But again, we, we cannot tell for sure. A lot of it is just uh, based on the limited information that we have. But certainly, as I said, like we have, we heard about these limitations on US numbers, on Russian numbers. We do see also from the side of like Citizen Lab and others, like when they do this research and they can see what what operators, Pegasus operators, where they operate in which countries, they typically see either countries, you know, that exclusively only infect people within their jurisdictions and then some others that are actually targeting across country borders. So in that case, in Galina Timchinska's case, we have seen that uh, and we have said that in our report that for example, we know that we see that Latvia does not seem to be targeting people outside of its borders, but Estonia, for example, is doing that. So so we can make certain sort of conclusions based on that. If there's so much, it seems like there's quite a bit of control and maybe even oversight by NSO Group. I mean, they, we're talking about you know them kind of having uh, various tiers of contracts that allow people, allow clients to use, not people, but allow states, I guess, to use you know, the use Pegasus in different ways, but there's also what appears to be widespread abuse of the software. And so I wonder, how do we reconcile these two? I mean, is it just that NSO Group is aware that the software is being used against oppositionists and against journalists, or is that not necessarily evident from their perspective? Well, they're very much aware since 2016, at least, the revelations have been very public. They have been in front, uh, you know, all over the news. So, and we have us and others have contacted them, I mean, not us, but organizations that work with us on this research and advocacy related to Pegasus spyware. There's been multiple attempts at outreach and dialogue. And what we have discovered is that uh, basically NSO Group is not really interested in meaningfully engaging with civil society about this. They have either just been not transparent at all, saying, well, maybe we'll look into it, but we cannot say anything about it either way. It's, uh, you know, it's confidential. We cannot disclose our clients and so on. Or they would sort of, I mean, in my view, just kind of create visibility that they are doing something and then still come out with answers that are just unsatisfactory. Like, for example, with uh, Human Rights Watch case where their Human Rights Watch staff has been uh, infected with Pegasus and they reported it to the NSO by using their official channel and NSO group came back with a very short answer saying that actually we have we have reviewed it and basically none of our current customers you know have infected your phone or something in that regard but the fact is like okay well what about your past customers so there's really it's kind of like a form of a gaslighting i would say and so 
oftentimes they kind of create this image like, oh, yes, we care about human rights. We have this policy. We have this committee that they supposedly set up. But since 2016, really, they haven't uh, shown any actions behind those uh, words that, they, that they've been saying. So we actually, at this point, almost have given up at even engaging with them in any kind of dialogue. And we now think it's time for states to take action to to sanction, to ban and otherwise penalize uh, this company for this conduct. One of the takeaways from this incident for me was that, you know, that Europe is kind of a, a battleground where this, where this can be used. Not only can it be used, but some of the states, I think you mentioned France and maybe the Netherlands, if I'm not mistaken, but they've been kind of resistant to international calls to ban Pegasus, the use of Pegasus or to endorse various protections for journalists, if I'm not mistaken. But like, the, there's not a like, there's not a uniform consensus on banning this this sort of thing outright. That they're they're willing to embrace sort of national security concerns. What can you tell me about the views on instituting sort of legal protections for journalists and and the kind of like the the differences of opinion among EU members? Yeah, unfortunately, states, as you mentioned, France and others have demonstrated this sort of strange contradiction. Like on the one hand, I mean, we are thankful to France, for example, joining the United States joint statement uh, to counter right proliferation of commercial spyware like Pegasus. Uh, but at the same time, they are doing, you know, taking actions that are contradicting this. So, for example, they have been uh, one of the states reported that really pushed for the legislation, the EU legislation, European Media Freedoms Act to be watered down, the text to be watered down, and where it was very explicit protection of journalists from spyware, um, they really, they inserted that extra exemption saying that, well, for national security, it should be allowed, basically. It's like it doesn't, it shouldn't be um, contradicting with uh, member states, basically right to do what they want under national security provisions. So it's really unfortunate that because it's really important that we have all states in this and involved and doing what they can and what they should really to put a stop to this proliferation. But of course, like states, they want to give, they want to leave themselves a right to, to spy on others. But I think especially, you know, democracies uh, such as like France and Germany and Netherlands and others, Latvia, Estonia, part of the European, you know, family, and they really have their democracies. They are, they have, there's a very strong European law, even without this legislation, there's a strong European law. There's a European Convention of Human Rights um, that has, protects journalists, protects freedom of expression. So if they, if these states, they want to really position themselves as opposite right to states like Russia, Russia that disregards human rights law, that persecutes journalists, that spies on journalists and poisons them and harasses them and puts them in jail, that they really should agree and say that actually this is not something that we do. We do not spy on journalists, especially with powerful spyware that is uh, really spyware for authoritarian states, right, to spy on their critics. We will not do that because we are different, because we are democracy, we're governed by our own strong national laws, protecting freedom of expression, protecting media rights, and also by EU law and by international human rights standards. So really, I hope that our investigation would be the push for that to really for states to to come out on this issue with very strong voice to say that it's just not acceptable for for democracies to be doing that. 
Can we go through the list of potential perpetrators of the specific, specifically installing Pegasus on Galena's phone? Let's start with Russian allies that use that, that use Pegasus. Why, why do you discount, say, Kazakhstan or Azerbaijan as having done this? Short of like, if we say, well, we don't really see Russia, right? I mean, Russia would be otherwise, right? Usually it's uh, the state that is the most sort of the, the journalist, right, or, or whatever human rights defenders opposition that they're critical of. It's their own state usually is a su- suspect. What we don't, I mean, we're kind of leaving that possibility, but we don't see that Russia is really a Pegasus user. We just don't have that information from all available evidence that we would usually not like look at. It's just not there. And so we think, okay, so who would be Russian allies who would be maybe working with uh, Russia and helping Russia to spy? So Azerbaijan and, and Kazakhstan are definitely, you know, could be out of all states, could be because they have been known recent uh, spyware users. I believe Uzbekistan at the time hasn't been a uh, user. That's what Citizen Lab said. I think both of the states have, have complicated relationships with Russia, right, in terms of their geopolitical position vis-a-vis, you know, being sort of, uh, you know, part of similar, like, international sort of multilateral mechanism with Russia. But at the same time, after the Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, they have kind of started distancing themselves from Russia. So it's really a good question. I don't think we have enough there to, to say either way, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a less likely scenario. But again, I try to kind of talk to some partners there. Uh, for example, in Kazakhstan, there were some allegations that, well, maybe there's some pro-Russian oligarchs or Russian oligarchs that are kind of enmeshed with the Kazakh uh, telecommunications, whatever, you know, the body that uh, is responsible for, for some of this, um, you know, would be responsible for the spying. But there hasn't been any concrete evidence. So um, it's really hard to say. And then in terms of sort of the, the potential European suspects here, I know that, you know, this, this incident occurred supposedly in February, or not supposedly, it occurred in February 2022 when Galina was in Berlin. And so Germany is a suspect, I guess. I mean, it's possible that this was done by German intelligence. I mean, like, why not Germany? Why not, why not any other European country? How, do we, how has the attribution worked with, the, with EU members? In my experience, it's been one of the most challenging, I think, attribution cases. So that's why we didn't want to discount fully because we just cannot tell 100% right who it is. And it is it is in general common for attribution of spyware, spyware like Pegasus, because as we said in the report, the whole point of this spyware, you know, existing, right, it's supposed to be secret and the company makes, puts a lot of effort into obfuscating the and hiding their tracks. But here, yes, we have a few number, a few EU states that are Pegasus users. And for this purpose, we have obviously Latvia, who is a host state, right, of uh, Medusa since 2014. Also, a state has that has been quite kind of suspicious, right, of Russian sort of since the full-scale invasion. They have been kind of suspicious or even critical, right, of some of the Russian uh, anti-war kind of an independent media. The incident was with TV rain. Howdy, folks. Pardon the interruption here, but I wanted to cut in with some background. In December 2022, Latvian regulators revoked the local broadcast license of Doge Television, aka TV Rain, arguing that the network constitutes a national security threat. The crackdown followed on-air remarks by a news presenter, later fired for the comments, 
who promoted a hotline to collect information about battlefield conditions for Russian soldiers. The scandal was that the presenter seemed to describe the tip line as a kind of assistance for Russian soldiers, a means of improving their accommodations and supplies, etc. Alexei Karastelov, the journalist in question, says his words were taken out of context, but the whole incident was a major problem, not just for Doge, but for the entire exiled Russian free press, which has faced growing hostility in many of the European countries now hosting large Russian emigre populations. In an environment where politicians and the public want to show maximum support for Ukraine, distrust of Russian nationals and Russian organizations, even independent and anti-Kremlin projects, is rising. This isn't a black and white issue. There are endless political and academic debates about the supposed inherent problematic foundation of the Russian perspective and so on. The whole thing is messy. And that's the background here. Now back to Natalia. And then we have Germany, which is where it happened, right? The actual infection on their territory. And from my understanding, it's also based on Citizen Lab's research is that the time zone also corresponds to the infection, corresponds to the German time zone of the, in February at the time. So Germany would be definitely a suspect. The only, um, the only thing is that we do know, and again, based on reports, that it's only the German police that has uses it, I suppose, for like actual criminal investigations, not intelligence services. So that would be an interesting, actually, uh, would be quite probably out of the jurisdiction of a particular agency that, that uses Pegasus. So if they were, in fact, using Pegasus, the police was using Pegasus against a Russian journalist on their territory, that would be quite a scandal, I think. And so it's something that we definitely should bring to light. The rest of today's show focuses on Pegasus, the spyware used to hijack Timchenko's phone. I asked Natalia what hackers can do with this program. When experts talk about full remote control, how full is full? There's information about NSO Group sending like technical teams to clients to help set up infrastructure needed to run Pegasus. And I was just wondering, what exactly is this? Because it sounds like something out of like a an action movie, like the bad guys have to send out like their their special ops team to like help set up the evil weapon or something. I mean, like, what what exactly is this? It's like a physical team that shows up and s- sets up some kind of computer or something. Or are you able to comment on that at all? Yeah, we have. We understand that there's some kind of training involved, uh, and it's likely it's likely in person. I think it's not just for Pegasus; it's for other types of um, spyware surveillance tools that it requires uh, training and there's there's traveling and there's some documentation or, you know, NSO and other companies traveling to state acts and so on. So there is some part of it, but I don't know as to fully how much of it is fully in person. There must be something remote, but it's certainly it's a service. It's not just a tool. It's not just like an app that you, that your user, customer installs and they use it. It requires training, it requires calibration, requires servicing. But again, NSO Group, they're not very transparent about this because they are interested in saying, arguing both things. On the one hand, they say, well, we have a lot of control over this, um, what our customers are doing. We can see if they're misusing our services. You know, we can we can stop it. We can take actions. Uh, however, when they're being sued in U.S. courts, for example, then they take the position of, well, actually, we don't do much. It's the customers that are doing the targeting. They select the the victims, they infect them, 
and we have nothing to do with that. So again, like it's it's quite contradictory, but it's um, it's something that again we have to deal with. Is they're constantly backtracking and confusing, and uh, you know the the available information. So it's hard to tell, honestly. Uh, one technical question: How long? Once a phone is infected with Pegasus, how long does it stay infected? Is it just forever, or does it only last a few days, or how long? It really depends. It depends on what the the operator, right? We say the person or the, the agency that operates the spyware. And it really depends on what their goal is, right? If they just want to come in and take uh, just the whole content of the phone, right? And just run with it, right? And usually they would try to somehow erase their tracks so that it wouldn't be detectable later on. That could be one scenario. And then another scenario, which I think is more likely with Belina's phone is that as we said in the in our report, is that we do know that Galina's phone was infected on February 10th, and her um, and then she attended on the 11th and the 12th a private meeting with uh, other uh, heads of independent media, Russian independent media in Berlin. And so, what I think probably happened, and again, based on Citizen Labs research, we know that the infection stayed for at least a few days or weeks. And so I think what is more likely is that her device was probably used as a as a microphone to listen in uh, on that meeting, and this is what usually happens. And for that reason, then whoever the perpetrator was, like they would be interested in keeping this infection ongoing in order to listen and maybe watch because they can also turn on the camera and basically watch and listen what's going on around Galina at the time. So in that case, we would expect that the infection would be lasting longer. So we have seen definitely uh, various cases. So those are very short. You kind of grab everything and go. Or we have seen those that are ongoing, that are lasting longer periods. And then sometimes if uh, individuals would uh, shut off their phone, for example, right? And then so then that would interrupt the infection. And then once the the phone is back on, we would see uh, attempts uh, repeated attempts to infect. Right. Insofar as what Pegasus has access to, is it best to just understand it as everything, everything you could imagine, the camera, the microphone, contacts, everything happening on the screen, every all, every bit of data in the phone, is that basically what Pegasus makes accessible? Exactly. So basically anything that you would have, if you had your own phone in your hands, right, anything that you can access, you know, it's uh, open, you know, password, everything notwithstanding, you would have everything you have access to, the, the attacker would have access to. And even beyond that, from, again, what we understand based on some of the evidence that has been made available, technical specifications, uh, we understand that even beyond that, there, there's even access to change the settings of the phone and even implant a potentially a false evidence or information that you wouldn't know about. And we haven't had that yet. Uh, we haven't seen that in the cases with Pegasus, but we have seen some cases with other spyware. For example, there's an India case in India where it was looks like the government, or, or I don't want to say it wrong, but the, the attacker basically implanted the evidence on the phone, and that was used against the, the the civil society folks in the trial. So Pegasus has that capability, but we just haven't seen that being you know manifested yet. Uh, but it's definitely a frightening frightening picture that it creates. Yeah. 
For all that's been written about Pegasus since 2016, when experts first uncovered traces of its existence, and since 2021, when an international consortium of journalists exposed the spyware's rampant global abuse, for all that, we know remarkably, worryingly little about how it works and who uses it in specific attacks. John Scott Railton is a senior researcher at Citizen Lab, an interdisciplinary laboratory at the University of Toronto that investigates digital espionage against civil society, among many other things. I asked John to walk me through the forensic work he and his colleagues do, starting with the basics of what they look for. Can you tell me what what is the digital foot? Is it digital footprint, footprint or digital fingerprint? Which one do you use? Or is it something a totally different term? How am I going to do it? Well, maybe I'm going to put some fancy spyware on your phone, but then what? Well, I have to get the data from the spyware. I have to have infected your phone in the first place. And maybe I have to give the spyware instructions on what I want and when it's supposed to self-destruct, right? Which means that I have a command and control connection with your phone. Now, that connection has to pass through the internet. That data has to come from your phone and go to me. And information has to come from me and go to your phone. Those things pass through servers. They do domain lookups. They are visible if you figure out the patterns of behavior that they represent. This is not a new thing involving NSO. This is like a st- sort of a stand- bog standard way that researchers track how malware and spyware behaves. NSO obviously goes to some lengths to try to obscure how the data goes from you, the victim, to me. They create chains of proxies. But those things can be unpeeled. You can open up the layers of the onion and figure out, in many cases, where the data goes. And I think the reason that even if certain European countries are buying Pegasus, it's not being used by their like fanciest foreign intelligence service is because they're aware too of that degree of visibility, that possibility uh, that somebody might be able to know what they're doing. I think we're still just in early days of them realizing how consequential and potentially scandal fraud that is. To describe how we confirm that something is infected with Pegasus? Well, it's a little bit like thinking about a crime scene after a burglary. There are going to be a bunch of different things. There might be some fingerprints. You might have some marks around the door. Maybe you might have some wipe marks where the burglar tried to wipe their fingerprints, but they used a cloth with a liquid that only a couple of people have. It's kind of at that level. What's so interesting about Pegasus and chasing Pegasus is that it is spyware designed with anti-forensics in mind, which means it is designed to obscure itself from people like us, which means that we have to not only look for the traces of the spyware, but also look for traces that the spyware is trying to obscure. But apparently you can determine that Pegasus was there, but it's also safe now. How is this possible? One interesting fact about like companies in the NSO category is that they traditionally use something a little bit like DRM, digital rights management, to try to prevent their customers from getting greedy and using too much of it and extracting more money from their customers. So for example, if you Kevin come to me and you're like, hey, NSO, um, I want to be able to spy on a bunch of bunch of these annoying dissidents and my political opposition. And NSO will say, great, we've got a package for you. Don't tell us anything about what you want to do with it. Maybe. Maybe they say that. Maybe they don't. But um, we'll give you a a 20 license pack. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you pay for 20 infections. It means that you have 20 concurrent infections. So if I've got Zach and 19 of his closest friends under monitoring right now, uh, if I want to infect Zach's new best friend, number 21, I've got to turn off one of those other 
uh, infections. It's not different from like, I don't know, Microsoft Word or Donkey Kong or something like that, FIFA. But what that means is that there's a sort of a, a process by which people get infected and then the infections often get wound down. And typically like cost conscious security services may focus on shorter total infection durations so that they can get a greater volume. Now, what does that mean? Well, sitting on your phone, of course, is whatever you're doing with that phone right now. You know, maybe you're having a conversation with me. Maybe you're texting like, oh my God, this JSR guy is so boring. Can't wait till this podcast is over. So that's what you're doing on the phone right now. Maybe it's the audio that the phone's microphone is picking up. You know, you're, you're grumbling while you're muted. I don't know. But the phone is also full of all of the text logs and chat logs and pictures and contact lists and phone logs and all these other goodies that may paint a picture of what you've been up to for the last couple of years. And typically when a person gets infected, we would imagine the first thing that the operators are going to do, like, let's read all his WhatsApps. And then from there, uh, they may make, you know, recalibration decisions. Do we want to stick around? Did we get the question we wanted answered? Um, is uh, this guy going into an important meeting? Maybe we're going to monitor that for 48 hours. Interesting fact about NSO is that sort of the, the default with this spyware, as far as we understand it, is that it actually self-terminates when you restart the phone. And so even if, you know, you've got an infection cooking along for a while and I don't know, the Pegasus customer like um, goes on a three-day bender and forgets that your phone is infected, if you turn off your phone on Saturday so that you can sleep your hangover, that infection is not going to recommence when you start your phone on Sunday. That said, if this, you know, a boozing NSO operator on Monday walks into the office and it's like, shoot, uh, we want to continue monitoring Kevin, well, they can just reinfect you. And so it means that in a sense, like back in the day with like hacking and somewhere, the real challenge was getting on there. And once you were on, you had to get persistence. You wanted to stay as long as possible because it was a big fucking chore to get onto that device. With zero-click exploits, getting access to the device is no longer the chore. That's NSO's problem, not the customer's problem. The big challenge is getting information and processing it and understanding it. And so you see a lot more short-duration infections. That's also why I would say NSO is so dangerous because it means that there's like, this is a signal that there's not like something that I can shout from the, the hilltop here and say, hey, kids, you need to do X or Y uh, and then you'll be protected from Pegasus. There are very few things that users can do that will reliably protect them. Now, there are certain things that everybody should do, for example, if they have an iPhone, I think, and they're at some kind of risk. One example of that would be lockdown mode, which is a higher security mode for Apple devices that provides, I think, a greater degree of protection from hacking. That said, I don't trust any particular mode or user change to really be a silver bullet. It's why there has to be regulation, because the combination of this like silent hacking capability, the fact that there's an industry constantly cooking up new ways to get onto phones secretly, and that there are eager government customers that have a temptation to abuse it, it's just a, a recipe for trouble. All this time, you've been hearing over and over about Apple and iPhones. As someone who owns devices from multiple digital ecosystems, I eventually broke down and I asked John about Android users. What about us poor slobs? Are we just screwed? The, the Android ecosystem is a challenge because there are many flavors of Android. You have many manufacturers who are not quick at pushing updates to their users, which means that you have just fleets of tens of millions of Androids that are not getting security updates walking around anymore. On the flip side, that diversity means that Androids are also a pain in the ass to consistently exploit. It means that if you're NSO, you've got to have a solution. Samsung, you may also have to have a solution for some of the other flavors of Android. But that doesn't necessarily confer much security. It wouldn't make me feel comfortable if I was walking around. Where I really wish that there was some progress 
is that Google was like, wow, this lockdown mode thing that Apple has done, that's kind of cool. Wonder if we could think about or talk with some of the big manufacturers about creating something similar for Android. That'd be a big win. Uh, right now, that doesn't exist. People who are trying to decide between iPhone and Android, like, don't look to me for advice. The big spyware companies target both. It's just that you hear a lot about iPhones in part because as researchers, it's paradoxically easier for us to find spyware on iPhones, but it doesn't necessarily say anything about whether or not they're more or less infections. Think about it like iPhones have like a very developed public health system, so we're probably catching more of the cases, right? Whereas with Androids, who knows? I know that like the stated ostensible premise of Pegasus is that it's to hunt terrorists and the worst criminals imaginable. Are they that sophisticated? Do you know? Are they that sophisticated technically that they need, that there needs to be this sort of like cover your own tracks, you know, infrastructure, like basis of this, of Pegasus? Like it sounds like if it's built that way, they have more in mind. NSO's pitch is terrorists and pedophiles. But the reality is four categories we see again and again. And by far the biggest slice of this pie it's not maybe human rights targeting, it's probably not criminal targeting, but it is governments targeting other governments for intelligence collection. And now it becomes clearer why this thing is so sneaky. It's not really designed for this stated purpose. It's designed because governments want to hack each other. They want to monitor each other. And a lot of governments, if they get their hands on secret hacking capability, are going to find it irresistibly tempting to not also hack journalists, their perceived political enemies, maybe the president's mistress. And that's just the reality that NSO keeps fueling. One of the, in Medusa's story, we quote an article by Andrei Soldatov, who argues that, that one of the reasons that Russia has been reluctant to use Pegasus or really any foreign spyware is that it would require sharing some of that you know, data goldmine with, in this case, is the Israeli government, most likely, or at least this, is, this Israeli firm that has these close ties to Israel's intelligence community. Does that mean that all the other clients are just sort of okay with this? Does that mean that they, like, they don't have any better choice and so they, this is their best option, whereas Russia and the United States, say, have their own kind of mega super spying infrastructure that they don't need to go that route? Well, I like to think of it like Neapolitan ice cream with three, three flavors, strawberry, vanilla, and It's like tier one nation state operations. We're talking about like China, the United States, Israel, France, the UK, right? Like really clever folks who don't need to buy anything from anybody. Then your vanilla is governments that can't develop that because they don't have the STEM pipeline in place. Maybe they haven't gotten their shit together to really train a lot of people in cryptography, but they can pay. They've got a big checkbook and they can buy reasonably openly. Chocolate is by regimes that can't get their hands on this kind of technology because nobody's going to sell it to them because it's going to look like violating sanctions or embargoes. So they kind of homebrew. And it's not that each country is only one thing. It's that each country probably has a mixture of flavors in it. So for example, you look at Europe. Well, some European countries have really sophisticated intelligence services, yet they may also be using Pegasus. For example, we know that Germany has sort of said, well, you know, federal police have acquired Pegasus and we think we've done it in a way that addresses the security problems that Pegasus was. It took them a while to do that. But of course, Germany are also really great hackers. But within a country, you may have like second and third tier priorities that aren't going to get the cool stuff that the really cool kids have over in, you know, the Bundesdach Rittendienst or whatever. And I think that NSO sees as its business model selling not only to states that don't have any really tier one capabilities, but also giving states that do have that, but that want to preserve it, 
something for their other, other components, like their police services. Of course, the core problem with Pegasus is something called fate sharing. What's fate sharing? Fate sharing means if something happens to you, it happens to me as well, right? We're joined, we, we're running off the same heart. And NSO is, in order to stay afloat, gonna sell to reckless and problem customers who are gonna do things with their deployment that are gonna cause it to get exposed and get discovered, which will have consequences for all of their customers. And so if you're buying NSO, you're putting yourself in that fate share box with like Togo. Do you really want that? And so to your base question of like, are some of these countries just YOLOing it? Like, okay, maybe we're going to get caught, right? The answer is kind of yes. And that's a really interesting reality. And I think we haven't, I think many European countries haven't fully understood like the counterintelligence and the security implications of this. They're only starting to discover that if you participate in this unchecked proliferation, it causes embarrassment after embarrassment for you, results in your tool not working. And also maybe your people get hacked with the same technology that you're ostensibly paying a handsome price uh, to use by some other government who wants to know your business. Has the situation gotten worse since the Biden administration added NSO Group to the entity list in the United States? Because I imagine like one of the things I was reading was that they basically have had to turn to even more unsavory clients, have have kind of had to open their their business to even (laughs) more groups because now the the strawberry tier is a little bit less you know willing to do business with them and so i wonder like is this like a kind of unintentional consequence of kind of a half measure of not like having a global moratorium on this i think what's going on is really interesting so <laughs> nso's big pitch both before it got put on the entity list and then in its many efforts to get off the entity list is like look we are so responsible we're like the best in the business but simultaneously out of the other side of that very same mouth they're like look if you guys don't allow us to continue business, we're just going to be forced to sell to really problematic customers. My sense about what's going on here is the U.S. sort of showed the way for how you could have big, disruptive impact on the mercenary spyware marketplace. Like the effect on NSO's like debt valuation was catastrophic. The gossip is part of the only reason that NSO managed to stay afloat in the last couple of years was through uh, certain maybe European customers who paid their bills on time. And what's interesting about this is that it really shows that A, governments that have a pretty comprehensive view of what's going on see what it is doing as a big problem. And B, unless you have a multi-governmental effort, it's going to be hard to really cause consequences to be like definitive for some of these companies. And that's an interesting problem. And what's so dramatic and stark is like in the last couple of years, what has the US done? You have two rounds of Commerce Department entity listings against mercenary spyware players. You've got an executive order. You have a whole bunch of public statements about mercenary spyware. You've got a joint statement of 11 countries talking about commitments around dealing with mercenary spyware. This is leadership, like it or not. Europe, well, they had a PEGA committee, which was supposed to investigate this stuff. It got bogged down in politics. And from Europe, largely crickets. And I think the way that this is going is Europe is going to have a growing mercenary spyware problem. Journalists are the canary in this proverbial coal mine. But this problem is like coming soon to a European elected official and it's grits near you if you're a European. I think like security services like Obscurity and companies like NSO like Obscurity about their specific business dealings, although they're 
previous CEO definitely loved talking to the media. And so for a long time, that kind of space owned the mercenary spyware topic, right? Politicians were like, okay, well, the security services, this is their deal and they don't want to talk about it. And what has happened with the US and I think the UK and others is like, okay, the security services are saying, hey, there's a problem that we can't manage in our little world. We're going to have to out some of these people um, and bump it, bump it out of that secrecy zone. But in Europe, maybe it's something about the culture of security. Maybe it's how many competing European security services you have. Whatever it is, they're just not able to solve this collection active problem right now. And it's going to hurt them in the long run. And we're seeing it all the time. I wanted to go back to Germany a bit. You mentioned the police agency there that that acquired Pegasus, but then defended it as, or not defended it, explained it as having acquired a version, a sort of light version of Pegasus with certain built-in restrictions. Do we has there been any confirmation from NSO Group about the existence of some kind of Pegasus light, and do we have any details at all about what restrictions there might be, or is it is our knowledge limited to this sort of statement that it has restrictions on it? Germany has a bad habit when it comes to dealing with problematic connections of coming up with what they think of as a German solution that's not going to have consequences outside the borders of Germany. And in the case of Pegasus, that's just manifestly not the case. Not only are they a paying customer of Venice, which means they're helping the company stay afloat despite consequences from some of its allies, but their presence as a customer is also cited to try to legitimize NSO as a company. Yet again, Germany is doing something uh, that is problematic for the cause of democracy and freedom around the world while thinking that they found some kind of a nuanced compromise. If only people would understand how they solved it. This is embarrassing and it, it's not going to be durable in the long run. And I think Germany is trying to sit on the sidelines of this uh, debate. You know, They were noticeably absent, for example, from the joint statement from the White House. And I just don't think it's a sustainable position, but like so many German compromises in the past, it may take a while for the consequences to be really felt in a way that causes German political action. In terms of what we know about Pegasus Light, I mean, we have what the government has said. And what's so interesting about it is it seems clear that part of why things took so long is because there were concerns about counterintelligence, concerns about whatever vanilla Pegasus does when it's in your country. And I don't know why that hasn't given every other European security service pause about potentially exposing their secrets to, to NSO and its connections. But here we are. Galina Timchenko was in Berlin when her phone was infected with Pegasus. Experts investigating these attacks strongly suspect that a European intelligence agency could have been involved in this hack. I asked Natalia Krepiva at Access Now to explain why Timchenko's case deserves attention in the West and what measures are needed in Europe to protect journalists, activists, and others in civil society from illegal spying. I think, I mean, I just wanted to say that just to come back to my point about EU states and democratic states, right, uh, with all of this war in Ukraine right now happening, Russia's illegal aggression, full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and there's a lot of this opposition of, uh, you know, between Russia and EU and the Western sort of democratic world. And I think, I wonder how much it means, right, uh, if we don't take a stand and say, actually, yeah, right, this kind of things like spying on the journalists, harassing journalists, this type of thing that actually we have to draw the line, right? This is something that states like Russia are doing, and this is something that is unacceptable. And I think, I do believe that this is something what 
Ukraine and Ukraine allies, right, are fighting for, right, to to have a right to have a democratic country, you know, Ukraine being a democratic country, being having a rule of law. And this is something that EU uh, countries, uh, Western countries are uh, sort of trying to exemplify. And I think that's why it's, it's very important. It comes to the very heart of this issue as to what are we going to do? Are we going to be more and more like Russia, right, authoritarian states, or are we going to actually distinguish ourselves and say, no, we do not allow treating journalists like national security threats, and are we going to protect them as, as democracies should? So I think this is really a key, key issue here. Although the, the product itself, I guess, is if you consider Israel part of the West, then the whole thing is a Western invention, I suppose, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. And I mean, and Israel is allies uh, with US and EU states. So it's, I mean, yes, and that's why maybe, I think Maybe this is the true face of the West. <laughs> yeah, but they have to then have extra responsibility in bringing this into alignment with yeah. what practice, what they preach, yeah. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.